What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Music in the Minor League. Today, we're talking with Charles Bryant, who is easily one of our favorite songwriters. Also, one of the people that if we had to make a list of people who represented the best of Houston, Charles would be near the top of that list. He's just stellar. Back when Kim and I were starting out as Brightwire, we used to play at his turnstile, junk piled, and railroaded Tuesdays over at the Last Concert Cafe. And when we kick off the podcast, you hear the story of how I actually met Charles. Before we get going, we got to do our housekeeping. So, you know, got to get that out of the way. But as always, we try to keep it brief. First, you like what you hear? Subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends. That helps us out a lot. Second, if you like the bands like Charles or anyone we've covered in the past, make sure you go follow them on all the social media outlets you can. Stream their music. It helps them find new venues and keeps them going. Finally, if you're listening to this the day it's released, we'll be over at Shoe Chine Charlie's Big Top tonight playing with Grifters and Shills and June Bird. And then to close out the month of February, we will be over at Mod Coffee House in Galveston, Texas for just a couple of hours of us playing tunes out on the patio. It's always a good time. Come hang and look forward to it. Mart will be out Union Tavern with Grifters and Shills, Matt Woods, and Sean Holcomb. Matt Woods is a heck of a singer-songwriter, country musician from Knoxville, Tennessee, and definitely worth your time. We'd love to see you there. Now we're going to kick it off with a song from Charles's new album called Unrequited. This song is entitled Back to You. Hope you dig it. Well, it's three in the morning, Houston time. And here I am, guitar in hand, trying to find some lines again that'll join up with this melody. Unlock the cage and set me free and take me far away to someplace new. But every line that I write down just takes me right back around to you. Now the sun's starting to come up And the coffee ain't ever strong enough So I'm searching for my cigarettes The ones I hid last time I quit The time I swore that that time I was through But every line that I write down Just takes me right back around to you This is where the bridge will go If I can find some words that seen the flow And maybe add a harmony or two And I might play my guitar here Just to add a little atmosphere Just something simple, tried and true But every line that I write down Just takes me right back around to you The sun's starting to go down And the words I want ain't wanting to be found So I'll throw it in my dresser drawer And maybe come back again for more When I ain't got better things to do When every line that I write down Don't take me right back around to you When every line that I write down Don't take me right back around to you Every line that I write down Don't take me right back around To you 
All right, to start, I'm going to set the stage for you. So many years ago, a friend of ours named Kenny Pipes had Almost Austin House concerts. And he brought in all these great people. And it was like a music venue in his living room. It was amazing. And after one of the shows we went to, it may have been Malcolm Holcomb, I can't remember. And he's like, yeah, my neighbor's playing after this is over. And you know... You're kidding. Someone's already played two sets. Wouldn't believe this about me, but I may have probably already drank like a six pack of beer. And it's like, <laughs> no. like, man, I just want to go home. Like, I don't want like, your neighbor. Come on. I just saw Malcolm Holcomb. I just want to go home. Who's going to beat that? And then, you know, this guy hops up on stage with a, at the time, pretty good shape. Cordoba classical, which first thing was a red flag. It was like, oh, this is going to, he's going to play classical guitar. Like I'm going to see her through a recital. And then for about the next, what, 45 minutes to an hour, I watched Charles Bryant just beat the shit out of that thing and play some just amazing songs that had you crying at points and made you feel all the feels and handed me, I think, sandcastles on CDs as box. And it was just like, man, I really saw something. And then, you know, since then, Charles has been all over the place. And where's he at tonight? He's right here with us here at the Sterling Municipal Library here in Baytown. That was a really good segue. Oh, man, I'm telling you, man, it's the truth. Like, I, you've already been at Kenny's. You get there at 6. It's like 10, 30, 11-ish. And it's like, yeah, my neighbor's about to play. Like, oh, you know, how good your neighbor? I mean, Kenny was a good person as far as music. This is who you need to see. But you're kind of like, all right, you know, live down the street in Pasadena. And then, yeah, man, Charles just living down the street in Pasadena comes out and just blows you away. And there's articles in texas music magazine there's people all around the country and the world that know that charles is kick-ass so man thank you for coming in and hanging out with us tonight well thank you sam i i, I got chills reliving that because uh yeah that was 10 years ago yeah th- you're right i mean he they i don't know if you've been by my place whenever you're around kenny's but he, the dude only lives like 200 yards from my house yeah <laughs> so that was it was just amazing uh this guy named craig kenzie I don't know if you know who Craig is. He's a Houston musician. Used to be in a band called Medicine Show that Mm -hmm. uh, became Sideshow Tramps. And I'd known Craig since he was a teenager. And uh, he's the one that got me started listening to Bob Dylan, you know. There's a reason I was mentioning Craig, and (laughs) you may have to edit this part out. He's the one that said, you got to get on Facebook. I had had been writing for years, you know, but it was therapy for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kathy... I had met Craig. He was working for a bookstore, uh, a religious bookstore, and I was a fan of this guy named John Michael Talbot. I don't know if you heard of him. He was a Franciscan monk. He used to be in a band called Mason Prophet. Yeah, he's a like a contemporary Christian musician. Yeah, yeah, and, and exactly. And he was uh, at the time Mason Prophet. I think I've read this. I don't know if there's provenance or not to prove it, but. Uh, the Eagles were influenced by them. It's it's a folk a rock. Mm. Him and his brother Terry, and he became a Christian, and uh, he started doing this contemporary Christian music. So when I started dating my wife, you know, she was into that, and I st- would listen. To, I said, I want to play the guitar like this cat, you know. Mm-hmm. So Craig, as a fast forward, the guy became a uh, Franciscan monk. This Talbot guy, and uh, Craig was dabbling in. Catholicism at the time, and I'd been dabbling in it too. So that's where their friendship started. Kathy met him, and Craig, like I said, Craig's got Terminal and Dylan. So we had a we'd been friends for about a decade, and he knew I, I wrote. And uh, when I got sick, I said I got I got to try to do something with my songs. You know, that's a long story. Maybe we will go into it later if you want to talk about that. But he says you got to get on Facebook, dude. People don't know that they don't know you, and. Uh, I said, I don't want to do Facebook. You know, that's not me. That's <laughs> right. I'm, that's not my personality. Just like with the real estate, you know. And yeah. So I, 
reluctantly I got on it and and I'm so I'm, you know how when you first get on Facebook you don't know your way around the neighborhood just serendipitously I saw Kenny Pipes and a guy a lady named Donna McKenzie yeah she had been a disc jockey for I listened to her for years oh yeah and, uh, she was raving about and it probably was Malcolm's show that she had went to yeah I think so yeah and I clicked on it and she was the one talking about almost Austin I clicked on it said Pasadena Pasadena I mean, we don't have anything in Pasadena. Right, yeah. I mean, he was pulling in, like, you know, there was a point there where the duck was getting threatened by the people he was pulling in. Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. I mean, he was pulling in, like, Will Kimbrough, Otis Gibbs. Yep. Like, uh, well, Tommy Womack, the other half of Daddy. David Olney. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, it was Sergio Webb. I mean, you know, it yep. was just, I mean, you're just like, and you're in this dude's living room. Wow. Yeah. Which, it sounds low, but I mean, he tore out a bedroom and put in seating. There was, like, lights in the ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it was seriously like a 60-person venue that was in his house. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a shrine now. I mean, the pic the pictures oh, and everything. Oh, God, yeah. So, when I saw that, I thought, golly, this is... And I looked on the map quest, and I thought, this is right. And for, for an agoraphobic, you know, I mean... 200 yards from the house it's like this is great you know so i don't remember how i reached out to him but he allowed me to drop off sandcastles and i didn't hear from him and i thought man this is not his cup of tea which is fine and finally he texts me or facebook messaged me and he dug the album and that's where the friendship started and yeah i mean what a blessing that guy's been for me because like you said he would let me play the after shows and and it wasn't uncommon for everyone like to depart, you know, yeah. and I understand that too, because uh, here's an old cat, and he's thinking this guy was worth his salt. He, there's, you know, we'd know his name, and that's been one of the double-edged swords of starting late. You know, I didn't play my first old mic till I was fifty at the Mucky Duck. I played, you know, nursing home ministry, things where I didn't feel threatened or vulnerable, or so, yeah, you know what I mean. But uh, so I get it. I, I get both sides of it. I, if I were looking from that perspective, I, I would have reticence to you know well that was kind of my thing too i was trying to put the timeline together did you record sandcastles before you even started playing live or y yeah so i'll try not to go on like i tend to, I, there's a joke i tend to say my dad he would ask me he'd say son i ask you what time it was not how to build a clock you know <laughs> yeah so i'll get off tangent uh, no you're good man so i was working in that plant i was telling you about and uh i did really well i was working in a chemical plant this is 2008 and um i was doing well i i, I was I had gotten out of the real estate market I was making a regular income, good insurance, and I have a wife and five kids, so all that was great. But the way they work out there, Sam, it's uh, four on, four off, 12s. But you're, you work 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., you're on call for four days, and 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., you know, graveyard shifts, and you're off call, which is cool. I like that type of shift. But they were calling us in on our, our call days, and it wasn't unusual for me to get called in every day. So I, it was. So I'd work a lot of twelve twelves, and I was in my mid forties when it went back out there. So doing heavy labor in your, you know, mid forties, it was pretty could be pretty tough, especially when you get oh, ready yeah. to go to bed, which is okay. I mean, I said that's what you sign up for. That's what you got to do. But when you're getting ready to go to bed, and you got these rail cars to get my my thing was they called me the Talon Man because uh, it's like that old fable, uh, "Don't throw me in the briar patch." Mm -hmm. Well, I'd been out there in my twenties. And at this particular plant, it's called Stolthaven, this Norwegian company. I've been out there, and it's smelly, messy. It's tallow. And I don't know if you've ever dealt with tallow or know what tallow is. It's what they make soaps and makeup. And, yeah. and it, can be, it can be pretty smelly and messy, greasy. 
but it's also safe because a lot of the products out there, a drop of it will kill you. And, yeah. And uh, so I was like, I'll be the tallow man, you know, and nobody <laughs> would bother me. And so I was having a good time with it. But, man, when you're 46, 47 years old and you're just working your tail off, climbing these rail cars and hooking these hoses up, steam. so what would happen uh, ultimately is like my body's like, hey, you got to go to sleep, dude. And it's like, no, I got rail cars to pump. So I'd go hit the candy machine and I would eat Snickers and Cokes and, and get that energy oh yeah and it worked like a champ for about nine months and my weight went up substantially i mean we're talking 50 60 pounds and my anxiety was going up synonymous with my weight yeah because of all the sugar and caffeine exactly on top of that yeah then blood pressure probably going up and i started having panic attacks again and my boundaries were closing in on me and i'm saying son of a gun man i hadn't been agoraphobic in 10 years and i can see the handwriting on the wall so i went to a psychiatrist and i gave him the whole spiel i said you gotta i've got to keep this job you got to put me on something and i asked him for volume and he said yeah i'll give you volume you know so he put me on volume and Valium was a wonder drug for me. I had to work with the safety guy out there because, you know, he said, okay, you can take this. My nickname out there was Chuck. You know, Chuck, you can take it, but you got to take four hours off. Well, Texas is a right-to-work state, and I needed a job. It's like, well, I can't take this stuff. So the way I would skirt it is I would take it before I got on the clock. So they can't mm-hmm. say technically I took it while I was there, even though I was bending the rules and at lunch hour i would i say okay one pill is four hours so a half a pill two hour a quarter pills an hour you know so i would try to deal with my conscience at the same time not be sober and with panic that yeah. i lost my job but what happened sam is i was needing more and more of this stuff and i was i was started cheating because like, i i gotta have one now you know okay yeah, yeah i'm panicking so but what i would notice is like a, they'd give us gatorade in the summer because we'd be outdoors sweating and uh, I would drink this Gatorade and like within five or ten minutes I just start shaking violently well I was needing more and more volume and so I, I called my uh, supervisor over we were having a cleanup day the head, the head of this company from Norway was coming in so we didn't have any work to do other than clean it up so when he drove by he'd think man my plant looks pretty good you know and so I was picking up trash and Every time I take a step, my heart would just start this arrhythmia thing, palpitating or whatever it was doing, and it, like a muscle spasm. And I would stop, and it would stop. I'd take another step, and I'm like, well, son of a gun, what am I going to do about this? And this went on every time I take a step. And I was, at this stage, I was starting to hide from people. I would find buildings to hide in just to try to pull my shit together, you know, and Finally, I said, I, I, t- I kind of said a prayer. I said, God, I, I know I told Kathy they're going to carry me out of here in Pine Box, but, you know, I'm rethinking this right now. I, I don't know if this is the way to go. You know, I don't know what to do. Yeah. So I sat there, thought on it, chewed on it, and I, I, I called my supervisor. And I said, and, and I said Vic, uh, I need help. And he said, what's wrong? I said, yeah. I said, um, I'm, ha- I'm having some issues. I said, I'm taking that medicine. He said, how many are you taking a day? I said, I'm taking about four a day. He says, damn. He said, well, let's go talk to Bill, the safety man. Well, Bill knew me my first trip out there. I'd made all the way up to operations supervisor, and thankfully, he didn't fire me. He said, uh, figure it out this time, Chuck. Well, this time, Sam, we had the Internet. When I'd been out there in the 90s, that hadn't come along yet. Gosh, access started out there in 88. I went from 88 to 93. So, yeah, the Internet wasn't a thing, and you just had to go to a library like this and and find some old antiquated book and try to figure it out yeah or at the san jacinto library so 
what I've discovered is I was a diabetic, and it was confirmed through all my research and stuff. I'll try to make it interesting without going to too much minutia, but in part of my discovery is that people with panic attacks have a difficulty metabolizing carbohydrates. Yeah. And I just kind of cynically said to them and said, well, shit, I'm not going to eat anymore, you know? And I thought, well, don't eat. Fast. See what happens. And uh, I was getting to the point where I was taking Xanax, which I'd been given Xanax as a teenager for my panic attacks. So it was getting atomic bomb time. When you're, mm-hmm. when Charles is taking Xanax, shit's hitting the fan. And uh, I fasted, dude. I didn't need anything. No Xanax, no Valium, no booze, nothing. I'm like, well, son of a bitch. What is going on here? Fasted the second day. No panic attacks. Don't need anything. I'm getting irritable. I'm hungry. Third day. Fasted again. Nothing. I told Kathy, I said, I think, I think I'm on to something here, you know? Day four, I'm really getting irritated, you know, but I'm I'm not panicking. I said, you know what, Kathy, I think I'm going to try to eat something, but just something healthy. So she went to Wendy's and got me a baked potato. And uh, Sam, I ate that baked potato, and I bet you within five minutes, I was freaking ready to climb the walls. Going yeah, out like of my, pure carbohydrate. Pure yeah, carbohydrate. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had researched that the glycemic index, I think, is in the 80s compared to sucrose sugars, like in the 50s. So you're right. It's just actually. Yeah, just pure starch. Yeah, yeah more pernicious than, than sugar. And uh, so. Kathy's got me breathing in a bag. You're fine. You know, you're you're fine. I said, okay, I'm on to something. So what I discovered was this thing called reactive hypoglycemia. So I knew from my research that when you're panicking, it's the fight or flight hormone. You yeah. Know, uh, adrenaline. Uh, the real actual name is epinephrine, but a doctor changed it to adrenaline. So, so I'm like, okay, well, where the hell is this adrenaline coming from? And when I researched why Valium worked, we have a neurotransmitter called GABA, G-A-B-A, gamma amino butyric acid. And the molecules from the benzos, as well as, as ethanol, alcohol, they attach to the GABA receptor. And there's like bands. And it, the GABA receptor expands like a donut. And it lets sodium hypochloride, which is salt, flow through the GABA. And the, and the sodium hypochloride is what neutralizes adrenaline. So that's why when we take a pill... That's the mechanism that's taking place. It's, it's expanding the GABA, yeah. and you're chilling. But once I knew the mechanisms, I, okay, well, I know the mechanism, but where the hell is the adrenaline coming from? And it was through that research I discovered that when you, like you said, Sam, when you, you hit that sugar rush, then you, your pancreas will dump a lot of insulin. To, yeah. to handle it. And and what happens when you're type 2 diabetic, which I was eventually diagnosed with, is as compared to type 1, is it's it's knocking on the door. The pancreas, the insulin is knocking on the door of the cell, but it can't permeate. Now, one theory is because when you put on weight, like I had put on a lot of weight, that it encapsulates, it covers the cell. Yeah. So you got a shitload of, of insulin. But it just can't get through. But what happens is so much free-floating insulin, once it does permeate, then you've you've got too much insulin and you go into super hypo compared to hyper yeah. low sugar. And guess what happens then? You go into something called gluconeogenesis, which is a conversion of fat to energy, to glyco to glucose. Guess what hormone is used for that? Adrenaline. Adrenaline. And I said, Okay, I figured this out. I went to, uh, Kathy told me about this endocrinologist. And I gave him all this research. I said, Look, my insurance is about to run. I was on short term with my plant and studying my ass off, dude. 
and uh, I'd already pursued the allergy angle. You know, I thought maybe it's allergies. So I said, I think I figured this out. And he got angry at me for playing doctor, you know. But I said, Doc, you got to do a four-hour fasting GTT, glucose tolerance test. He goes, okay, yeah, I think you're right, but let me be the doctor. I said, okay, yes, sir. So I get to the testing site. This is a Thursday. My insurance is going to expire the next day, Friday, and um, and I'm going to be busted, broke. It's going to get shipped to Connecticut to see if they're going to let me go to long-term disability, but I'm going to have zero money coming in. So everything was riding on this, you know, and... Um, so I get to the test site, and it's a two-hour GTT. I said, no, ma'am. I said, this has got to be a four-hour GTT. And I pulled all this paperwork. I said, it's got to be. Well, you're going to have to go. So I went up to the doctor. They corrected. Several hours transpired, you know. And the re reason I'm thankful I went through that instead of the two-hour, I did the test. And they gave me this rich, sugary concoction. And I started feeling like crap, you know, a few hours into it. And I thought, they're going to find something, you know. <laughs> right. I feel too bad. And so it seemed like weeks or months. It, but finally, I got a call. And I just knew that I had a, like a test. You know, I knew I'd aced it, you know. And I felt confident. Let me put it that way. I don't sound too arrogant. But so I get a call, and it's from his office. And it's a nurse. And she's like, we got to see you right away. And I said, it's about that test, right? She goes, yes, sir. We got to see you right away. And that sense of urgency, I, I thought, okay, they've discovered something. So I said, well, look, I have no insurance. My wife is a registered nurse. If we go down there, would you just let me know the results without me making an appointment? Because I don't have any money. He said, oh, yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely. So we get to the site, and we get to the uh, doctor's office, and she's talking to Kathy, and she says, oh, we would say your husband's a type 2 diabetic. I said, yes. You know, I figured this out. <laughs> right. and I, yeah. Yeah, the only time you're ever having to hear that diagnosis. Right. Like, I'm right. I figured yeah. this out. <laughs> I'm finally right about something. And you're something. like, oh, shit, I'm yeah. type 2 diabetic. <laughs> yeah. so, so I didn't couldn't see the doc. So I said, well, I called and left messages of what I do, you know, and he says, well, I'm not going to call you that now. I said, why? He goes, because now you're not insured. If I call you a diabetic, that's going to follow you the rest of your life. He goes, I'm going to call you hyperinsulinemic. It's the same thing. You just got too much insulin. He said, I said, what's the remedy? He said, lose weight. I said, I knew it. When my weight went up, this crap yeah. started happening. So what happened is I'm ready to go back to the plant. Music was, because of my agoraphobia and my social, crippling social anxiety, music, I mean, I used to play baseball. I wanted to pitch for the New York Yankees. Yeah. You know, or, or the Astros second. <laughs> but reality is, I, I could not, I had the physical ability to pitch good, these big old long arms, you know. Between that and my adrenaline, I could really throw a ball. <laughs> But I couldn't deal with it up here. Like Yogi Bear said, like half of baseball is fit sentimental or something like that. Yeah. I didn't have it up here. And it's the same thing with music. I couldn't get in front of people. So I, I reckon that. I, I was I was okay with it. So the way I wanted to do it, Sam, is I wanted to make a bunch of money, like at the plant or whatever, and then go in the studio and do it like uh, is a guy named Jankin or whatever from Houston the Jandick yeah Jandick yeah. and I want to be like Jandick you know like this unknown right it's just a record yeah shows exactly yeah. so that was the plan of attack all along and uh, so I was ready to get back to the plan so what year did you record Sandcastles so the lead up to Sandcastles and this is what's ironic about it so I'm losing this weight right and the way I'm doing it Kim is I'm running my ass off I am really trying to spike that metabolism so I can get back to my plant because I didn't know if they were going to approve me for long-term disability. Right. So all this weight's come off of me. I've lost all 50, 60 pounds, but something's wrong up here. There's this, this darkness coming over me. And I knew I was dying. 
I knew I was. And I told my wife, I said, Kathy, I'm dying. And she said, what what do you mean? I said, I I can't tell you, but I know I'm dying. I'm actively dying. And I said, it's not depression. This is a sense I've never had before. And um, I was going at the time, I was going to St. Pius. And I'd met these, this young couple and really cool. They used to have a, a band called Wayside Drive. They played in Houston, rock band. Yeah, yeah. Really and nice. Yeah, so we, we got to be good friends. And I, I, I called him one day. Uh, his name's Jeremy. And I can't remember his last name right now because it's been 11 years, since 12 years since we did Sandcastles. But I told him the spill. I said, I'm six. There's something wrong with me, dude. Can you record me? I don't, if something happens, I don't want to take these to the grave. And he says, yeah, it's weird you call me because I'm just recording, wrapping up my first album for this dude. And when we finish in about a month, we'll record you. I said, okay, cool. So that was the plan. This was 2011. And, um, so you're like, I'm dying. I have to record these yeah, things. Yeah, exactly, for posterity because I didn't have anything else to leave my children. And so we were going to record on a Tuesday. And I had started like a month prior to this. I had, when I was running, I started having this pain down here. It was like I'd pulled this muscle, and it, but it was getting worse. It was getting, it was getting really bad, and it was getting to the point like uh, they needed a catechist at the at the church, you know. And I'd become Catholic, so I was, you know, I'd been raised Southern Baptist. So I'd come at it. I was really, a, I studied a whole lot about Catholicism. So I was yeah. excited, and they're like, we love it when a Protestant becomes a Catholic because. You know, what do they call them, cradle Catholics? They generally don't, they just accept and don't ask questions. You guys usually do a lot of research. and Yeah. So I was, at the time, I was I was teaching, and I would go down, you know, halfway through Mass, and I'd walk with the, with the Bible over my head, and I would just be, I'd look like a hunchback of Notre Dame, you know, just, just dragging my leg behind me. And Kathy's like, you're, you're looking ridiculous. And I said, what do you mean? She said, you're... You're, you're in so much pain, you, everybody's you, feeling sorry for you. I said, I'm old. I'm 46 years old. <laughs> <laughs> you thought it was age. Yeah. Well, it's a muscle cramp. I'm 46. <laughs> what do you expect? I'm over the hill. And, uh, she says, no, there's something wrong with you. And I was thinking about what I've been feeling with this death thing. And I said, so she took me and my daughter, Emily's, and Emily's, she said, would you talk to your dad? He's he's getting ridiculous. She said, Dad, lift your pants leg up. I lifted it up and said, oh, my gosh, we got to get you to the hospital. Well, my leg was about this big oh. and red oh, and hot. Oh, no. And I go to St. John's and over here in, in Clear Lake in the emergency room, and they said, sir, why, why do you come in? I said, sir, let me look. I'm an agoraphobic. And since I was a little boy, I was diagnosed when I was a teenager, I, I'm a hypochondriac. And any time that I would feel bad, uh, they said it was all in my head. And uh, I just figured I'd pulled something. He goes, no, you, you've got something called a DVT, and, and yeah. it's a massive yeah, DVT. Yeah. And we're going to have to put you in the hospital right away and start oh, working wow. on this. And so they put me in the hospital. And the week before that, Kim, I had woke up. I couldn't breathe. And I said, Kathy, it's somebody, it feels like somebody's stabbing me in my back. And she goes, what do you mean? It's like somebody's stabbing me with an ice pick. I couldn't catch my breath. And so fast forward two weeks later, she's like, you remember when you complained? Well, her being a nurse, she says, I'm afraid you got these things called pulmonary embolisms. Tell that to your doctor. So the doctor comes in, and I express that to him, and he does a CT scan. Well, he finds two 
humongous clots in this lung and pneumonia in that lung. And I'm like, golly, I really don't overcompensate, you know? Right, no shit. <laughs> wow, I'm just, it's just mental. It's like, yeah, everything, it's everything in the world's going wrong. Yeah. And something compelled Kathy to bring this book by a gentleman named Victor Frankel called uh, Man's Search for Meaning. And I read that book in the hospital, and uh, I just made peace with God. I, I said, you know, God, if you're ready, I'm ready. I'm ready. I mean, I'm kind of bummed that. I'm not leaving anything behind. I'm kind of bummed that I didn't make anything out of my life, I'm, you know. But, I mean, pragmatically speaking, I'm bummed. But at the same time, who am I? Because yeah. I, I, you're you're like li literally a fly on the wall. And you, you start to, like we were talking earlier before we came on air about the, uh, the World War II series, it puts things in perspective. Right. And, and you, start, you start thinking, I am nobody. Yeah. I am nobody. I'm probably and lucky I just got to do what I got to do. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I had just this piece. And they were like, uh, you are not to get out of this bed unless you have to do number two, you know? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Because they didn't want to dislodge one of those clots. So yeah. it, was, it was kind of, in a way, a thrill ride because they were shooting me in the stomach with this stuff called Lovenox to try to rapidly thin my blood. But every breath was like a Russian roulette thing. Yeah. So in a sadistic way, it was kind of like <laughs> Russian roulette. You know, it's like, is this the breath that's going to take me out? You know, and it's kind of a weird throw ride. But that I, I called uh, Jeremy and I said, hey, dude, I mean, we're not going to be able to record. And he said, well, hey, you want me to bring my laptop? We'll just record you in the hospital. But I had IVs and I said, dude, I won't be able to pick my guitar right now. You know, and I, I can't sing because these clots. And he said, I said, look, if I live. We'll do it. And if I, do, if I don't, it's okay. We tried. And I lived. And uh, that was really what lit the fire under me. You know, like once I got use of my arms and my lungs, uh, we recorded, we started doing sandcastles in his bedroom, you know, and, and uh, he had a little studio set up. And I don't know if it was a laptop or a regular computer, but we we did them there. And, and uh, you know, I didn't have much money, so it's not real elaborate, but... Yeah, but it's the songs. That's a hell of yeah. a record. I mean, the songs are good. Th thank you, Sam, for that. I, I, yeah, I was, I was happy with it. And then, but thirteen months passed, and I sold like five copies. And yeah. I'm like, kind of like what Craig had said. People don't know that they don't know me. And that's where I made the faithful decision to. Uh, you had to get on Facebook, didn't you? Yeah, I had to get on Facebook. <laughs> and I had to do the. I had to do the, the, the open media. mic thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's that's where it all started, and it was just a slow. Now, granted, getting my sea legs was uh, once I got past. Once I got on the, the proverbial horse, I got some confidence. The first one was glorious. Uh, my dad was there. You know, one of my daughters was there. Craig was there. Got a great ovation, you know, played a banjo tune. It was really cool. And um, the next week, I'm thinking the same ambiance is going to be in that room, you know. So I'm on the horse. I got to stay on the horse. Dad's still with me because I'm still, you know, agoraphobic. And um, so you walk in the Mucky Duck. Y'all, you guys have all been there. You know, they got that one table right when you enter. Mm -hmm. And there's a crowd, probably eight people. And they're being really, really loud. And I'm still very vulnerable to any criticism or anything. And I was the first on the list, you know. Actually, it was number two. They leave number one open. And so I was, was going to be the first. And this guy walks in. He says, oh, man, it's all taken up, you know, all the names. I said, well, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm number two. If you want to jump me and just go to number one. So he sang beautifully, played the piano beautifully, and you couldn't hear him. That table was being so loud. So I'm getting, like, butterflies in my stomach. I'm like, golly, man. 
So I get up there and I get through my first. I get get three songs. So I get through my first one. I'm halfway through my second one. And I lose my shit, man. I stop right there and I said, "Look, I'm not trying to be a jerk, but that table's so loud. I can't hear myself up here." And at that stage, you could hear a, a pin drop. I bet. And uh, <laughs> and I'm like, immediately I knew that was a faux pas. And I'm start to crawfish. I said, "No, it's not you guys. It's not you. It's 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 me." And so the sound guy just jacks everything up, so everything's blaring. And I'm like, "Oh, you screwed up now, dude." I get to the two songs, and I'm doing damage control best I can. You know, I get off and I I go to the guy that hosted. I won't say his name because he's still host. <laughs> and I said, "Man, I'm sorry for uh, for saying." He goes, hey, "He bitched me out, man. He chewed me out." He said. He pointed his finger at me and he scolded me. And we're friends now, so I. I but I still not going to say his name. But he said, he says, you never get on the table. You got that? You got a problem with sound? You you say so to me. Well, it had nothing to do with the sound. It had to do with Charles wearing his heart on his sleeve. Yeah. Because I'm thinking internally, you dumb son of a bitch. You've been writing for forty years and you're not good enough for thirty years at that stage. And you're not good enough to command attention. So I, I self harm. Through my, oh yeah, yeah. you know you what kill I mean. Yourself all oh, yeah. the time, what you're thinking. Exactly. And this gentleman, bless, bless his heart. I love him to death. His name, uh, he was there, Mark Benham, and I just played a house concert last week, and Mark was there. We've been, he's with me right from the get go, and he he grabbed me, he says, Charles, I'm glad you said something, because if you hadn't said something, I was going to say something. There's things on all these tables. You're supposed to be quiet and respectful. And he says, so I'm gl- I'm glad you did that. You did right. So I had a little bit of validation, and I realized that we're all kind of that way. Uh, all the songwriters, you know, we're all a little bit sensitive. I guess you got to be sensitive to be a songwriter. I yeah. Think so. But I was done. That was it. Just two open mics and two were, open mics. That was on. enough for I you. I said, "That's it. I, I, I'm done with this bullshit. Been there, done that. Got the t-shirt. I'm finished." Yeah. And I told Daz, "I'm done. I'm, I'll go back to selling my copies on Amazon or whatever. But I don't need this shit." And then. The third one rolls around, and it's a Tuesday, and I was on Facebook, and this article came out. Uh, it's by a, a gentleman up in New York. He's a concert pianist, and he would practice like eight hours a day, and he he had a condo, I think it was, uh, in eyesight of the Twin Towers, and when the planes hit that day, he was, it was severely traumatized like so many of us were, and but especially him seeing it and living in New York. And so Sam, he went to rehearse the next day and he opened his piano and immediately closed it. He says, what's the use of it? It's frivolous. You know, he just, there's no use. So he didn't play his piano for, for weeks, like two or three weeks. And he said, I started noticing in the aftermath, they started doing these benefits, you know, the telethons and and what have you. And they were all centered around music. And he goes, I had a, I had, a, I realized music was healing. He says, I'm a, I'm a phys- physician. I'm a physician of the soul. He starts self-talking this. It is important what I do. And uh, he goes, if I can just touch one heart, you know, it's worth it. And I, I bought into it. I bought into what he was selling, you know. And this was a commencement address he was giving to some college grads. And I thought, I'm a physician of the soul. If, I, if one person is touched by my music. So I told my dad, I said, let's go back. Let's go, let's go back. And it was a glorious night. And I met this girl named C4 Eprahimi. She was playing, uh, she was, I, f- I just felt a kinship to her. She yeah. was, she was, uh, do you know who C4 is? Yeah. yeah. She, she felt like a fish out of water, like I felt like a fish out of water. She's wearing spandex, carrying a flying V electric guitar. And I thought, this girl is just, uh, the bomb, you know, and she's playing an open, I could tell she's an open D or open G, 
and she's uh, sounds very country. Her voice is very, very country, and it just like none of the pieces fit. But that's what, in my mind, made it cool. Right. But she was. You can see she was awkward and felt. You know, she was blushing, and she got through like half of one song. So she's. I can feel her pain. Mm -hmm. um, so she's walking by, by me, and I just grabbed her arm and said, "You did a wonderful job." And man, that must have just been manna to her because she goes out. She goes, "Thank you so much." And she leaves, comes back, and gives me a little. EP she had done and I think I've got to say something encouraging to her you know so I follow her outside I said I said C4 her name's Cecilia but she's the fourth Cecilia so that's why she gave herself the moniker <laughs> the letter C, C the number four, four. yeah I said, C4, you've got a, I noticed you're playing an open D, I think. She said, yeah. I said, you know, I'm a banjo player. I play claw hammer banjo. And I said, you got a great country voice. Have you ever thought about, it's it's what you're doing. It's basically a strum, strumming thing. Yeah. She goes, I've always wanted to play banjo. I said, have you got a couple seconds? I'll give you a quick lesson. You know, I'd already played my set. So I showed her and we. I gave her a little uh, claw hammer banjo lesson in the parking lot there. In the street, and and she, she, you know, she was listening, and she dug it, and she, but she says like, Charles, I hate to cut you sh short, but I got to go play another open mic. I said, wait, you can play two in one night, and she goes, yeah, yeah, you got to go. Is this place called the Last Concert Cafe? And this is early, gosh, Sam, I played, I played my first open mic, I think, in September or October of 2012. So this was still probably, yeah, this was still 2012. So that's what started my odyssey. I said, uh. Okay, so I told I cut my dad. I said, Dad, I got to put my big boy pants on. I got to grow up. I got to try to do this by myself. So I went to the Mucky Duck and then went over to the last concert. And Jimmy Lee Dean was hosting. I don't know if you guys ever played there during that time of, or not, but Jimmy Lee Dean, God rest his soul, we just lost him. Yeah, a we knew him from playing with uh, with Wendy. Yeah, he was quite a character, and 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 uh, he hosted it. And I could hear him. I was out in the parking lot in front of the last concert, and I could hear him you know coming over the fence and i'm out there shaking dude i'm physically unable to even hold my my guitar i'm shaking so bad i'm by myself trying not to depersonalize you know and but i'm i'm rerunning these things okay physician for the soul you know you you, you know god let you live you know i'm, I'm trying to c give myself confidence even if it's bullshit <laughs> yeah like, you know right. give yourself that <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah. It, even if it was baloney <laughs> um so I get in there and I'm shaking and everything, but uh, I get through it. And there was a guy performing that night named Trey Martinets, and he was playing a uh, song called "Medicine." I think it was from a guy. I love this guy. He's a singer songwriter out of Seattle, but I have I can't. His name's not coming to mind. It starts with a J, um, but he's in that sub pop uh, group up there. Mm -hmm. It, maybe it'll come to mind in a second, but he's playing a cover of him. And I saw his girlfriend there, and I gave her a copy of Sandcastle. I said, I is that your boyfriend? She said, yeah. I said, I love it. You know, his. So the next week rolls around, and I, I just cut the monkey duck out. I said, this is my tribe. It, yeah. it, this is more low rent. This is more like me. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I understand. Well, it's good to find your community. Yeah. Your place. Yeah, exactly, Sam. Uh, Mucky Duck, I love the Mucky Duck. Don't get me wrong. Well, actually, I don't, I don't love it, but I, I, I like it. Any Anytime you have a venue to play, that's a blessing. Yeah. But the reason I say I don't love it is because I don't feel comfortable there. I never feel like I'm in my element there. Same, yeah, I understand. Yeah, like, like Kenny's house. You know, I just, it's just, 
I don't know why, but so I, it felt like a hand in glove at, at the cafe, and that became my place. And this, so that fourth week, Trey, uh, I'm talking to Charlie Harrison, and Charlie had seen me at my first open mic. He'd seen me blow up at the second one, <laughs> and and we're on the side there getting re- Charlie's getting ready to play, and I'm next after him. And he says, uh, Charles, uh, so Trey's coming in. I'm talking to Charlie. He says, Charles, I got this place, a gig at a place called Where's Waldo. He said, it's a three-hour gig. You want half of it, and I'll take half of it. He said, yeah, man, yeah. So it's going to be my first gig, you know? Yeah. So Charlie exits to play, and Trey, I'm talking to Trey. He says, you gave a CD to my girlfriend last week. I didn't know when it hit me or, or thanked me. Right. He says, I love it, man. He goes, like, I'm a big fan, you know? He goes, let me know when you're going to play. I want to come see you. And I said, well, I just got a gig. He says, Where, where's it at? I said, it's called Where's Waldo's? And uh, he said, dude, that's right down the street. I, I live on like 16th Street. So I'm playing this gig like a week or two later, and Trey shows up with four dudes, and they're watching me. And they treated me like royalty, Sam. I mean, afterwards, I mean... I felt like Johnny Cash or something. They're all <laughs> surrounding me, grinning and and looking up at me, and I thought I I wasn't used to that kind of attention. You know, it yeah. was it was kind of weird, uh, surreal. And they said, "Hey, will you you will you come talk to us? Uh, we we live at this house, and we want to we want to invite you over and talk to you." And so I told Kathy. Kathy was there, I said, "Yo, you mind if I go down there? They want to discuss something with me." And I they said, said, "No, go ahead." And so. So we want to hear your story, and um, I, I tell them my story, and and they they get down to the nitty gritty. So here's the deal: we're filmmakers. We're doing a, a documentary about the last concert cafe because uh, it was a brothel, like in its heyday, you know. Yeah. And uh, nice. So and that's why they still have the red door and everything. <clears throat> oh. But we want to integrate people like you that are trying to get into the music business into the documentary. And then we found two people we like, you and this girl named Charity Ann. Well, I'd seen Charity play and was was kind of bowled over, uh, you know, by her delivery. And it was, I kind of mixed feelings about her because sometimes when she's in that sweet spot, it was amazing. And sometimes in her delivery, it got a little too body for me, you know. So I'm being, I was kind of hypercritical, but at the same time. So you I thought, knew talent when you saw yeah, it. Yeah, at the same time, I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, and she's killer. And I'm already thinking, I'm going to write for her. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm already planting the, ger- you know, the germ and the seed, you know, because I want to get off the damn stage, really. I want to be <laughs> right. like, my, my dream is to be, again, it's like I want to pitch baseball. Yes, I want to do that, but I know I can't do that. It's stretching my boundaries w- with my crippling anxiety. And um, so I'd ask, I met Charity. There's some backstory that I don't want to go into because it's just, it's just too involving a lot of tears and stuff. But uh, I just started wanting to protect CA. You know, I call her CA, you know, right for her. And she's just had a lot in her life. She's been through a lot. And we got to be, because of Blueprint and us playing shows together, we got to be. She was a, she played for five years in the USO. So even though I was older than her, I was about two decades older, from a performance standpoint, I was a novice. She right, was yeah. a seasoned pro. From a songwriter standpoint, I had a lot more songs of age, so it was it was really kind of cool. And so I said, "Well, CA, can I write for you?" So that's when I started saying, "Well, maybe I can do claw hammer techniques." So it kind of and I'd seen Malcolm Holcomb, and um, so he started to expand my deal, Sam. My, and, and but what would happen is, so I'd write these bombastic delivery songs for CA, but she self-taught as well. She has a very idiosyncratic style, so. I would end up playing them, and it would add to my repertoire, you know. And uh, 
repertoire or however you said the word so it actually helped me you know it got me it gave me more diversity when i would play like with chris hardy down at union tavern yeah. or in a busy bar where i needed uh, something more you know louder and had punch through the mix it, yeah. exactly and you know the way i dealt with it, honest to goodness as i just kept taking more and more volume and and drinking a lot more booze that's why i, I stayed on the stage and uh it got to be a pretty bad train wreck you know, I, I wrote like crazy because you got to remember, I went through the thing with the blood clots and I, I already felt like I dodged the Grim Reaper and I'd gotten a second chance. So there was this, that continued sense of urgency. And so I looked at it synonymous to like a soldier. Soldier, I would think, doesn't want to leave their home and the comforts of their family or job or whatever to go fight in a foreign place, obviously, you know, but they'll do it out of conviction. Yeah. Well, I had a conviction that I'm, I need to do this while the hours I'm not getting any younger type of thing. So that's what compelled it. And I guess I wrote 40, 50 songs. It, it was crazy. Yeah. No, they were flowing out. I remember seeing you and every time, like, I just wrote, like, these two or three. It wasn't like, I got this new song. It was like, here's this set of new songs I just worked out. Yeah. And it was just like, and it wasn't like it was just half-baked ideas either. Like, it was full-fledged, coherent songs. It, it's insane. The, I, I look back at that now, it's almost like two different persons. Is that, knock on wood, I haven't had a volume since 2019. I carry them with me still kind of like uh like you would carry a fire extinguisher you know break, yeah. gla break glass in case of but uh just the cognitive the next day uh was just not isn't this not worth it you know yeah um well, it was always wild because I remember hearing you always talk about agoraphobia and all stuff. And it was like, there's one thing I know when I think Charles, I think like a couple things. A, just probably one of the biggest like matchmaker kind of people. Because I mean, oh, dude, have you met this person? Have you met this person? Like, yeah. but I guess in a way you think about that, it's like y'all talk. I'll just stand here and let y'all have your <laughs> moment. And so I guess that makes a little bit of sense. But you know, it always just really engaging on stage, just even when it was just kind of, you know, you could tell it wasn't necessarily comfort but there was never a point where you were just completely disconnected like you always were good at connecting with people well you, you know it's funny you say that because there, there I, it's like a new birth you know it's like i finally am, am doing what i was made to do yeah and so it was an unspeakable joy dude i mean really it was like i found my i found my life finally at 50 years old i found my life i was so grateful and thankful and 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 then and i still am i still am i'm sometimes i cry out of thankfulness you know uh no i understand that completely i was on the radio yesterday it was sunday with a or saturday with sandy wyman on his show yeah. and i started Dead crying man. thinking about you know but um yeah, last concert cafe gave me a Tuesday night show, and uh, yeah, and I just knew pragmatically. I thought, golly, they're not going to hear me every night, you know. And so I, I was able to use that as a springboard to kind of accelerate what I had lost starting so late to let me network, you know, and reach out, to, you know, to artists, come out there and, and play us, you know, Matt, Matt Harlan and, and Mighty Or, you know, but, and yeah. I would pay him 50 bucks out of my pocket, but it was worth it. We got good crowds and I did that for 27 months. And uh, so thank but, you for having us out, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> thank I think you that was coming. one of the first times really locally, me and Kim <laughs> did stuff together. Yeah, it was great. Like I said, it was a great networking Thing, yeah. You know, and James Wilhite eventually would close yeah. out the night. And it just got to be too hard for me to try to gig and and make that 
happened to you know because i put a lot of work into that show trying to uh, tom turner would have his band on it to begin with but again it, it just it did it, it helped me and I, I always wanted to write more sam because being uh is the word transit where you're stuck in one spot or i can't remember uh, but or is it non-transit yeah, tra- yeah non-transit transit is non-transit all, all you're, yeah. You, yeah you're stuck you've got to have a different wrinkle right because audience i don't care who you are like if bob dylan came down here he would pack it first night. But if he stayed there 365 days a year, he's not going to pack the crowd. Maybe he might, but I don't see him selling out every night. You know, Yeah, it reaches a point where it's like, ah, Bob's playing again. Exactly. <laughs> you know, right. and so there's, there's a saturation point. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. so there is a reason people travel and tour, you know, because it's, it's, it's new. It, mm-hmm. And so so that's the reason I would do that. And But I realized, too, that I've got to play. I've got to play outside just uh, the cafe. So I finally... You know, cut ties with it, but um, it's so it's not I, been pretty. Can I ask you a question? I want to backtrack a little bit because it sounds to me like you've always written. Yes, you've always written songs. The Have first you always day, played? The first day Kathy taught me how to play a guitar, I wrote a song. She Kathy was a minister's daughter, and she would sing in church when she started playing. When she's seven, and um, I always felt like I had one of two callings as a little boy: either be a baseball player because I love baseball. Or to be uh, to follow in the path of, of Glenn Campbell. When I was about seven, I walked in. It was at 1969, and my parents had that playing. And I'd never seen a guitar player. Uh, so I'm watching this show. It's called the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour. Oh, yeah. And I'm watching this thing, Kim, and I'm like, what is this? Who is this? What is happening here? It was like heaven come to earth. Yeah. I just was transformed. And I said, whatever he's doing... I've got to do this. They're sitting in the circle with John Hartford playing. And the problem was, in that day and age, we're talking 69, you know, I didn't know anybody played the guitar. There was no cell phones back then. There was no cable TV. There was no YouTube. There was no nothing, you know. So I just stored that in the back of my mind. But we moved. And this is, I want to tell this story because it's kind of, it's either a weird coincidence or some kind of divine intervention or something. So we move. We're in Deer Park at this stage. My mom was the manager of this town called Park Town Townhouses. And when I see this Glen Campbell thing, so we moved the next year to a house, a place called Pine Lane, which is only like half a mile from townhouses. But it put me in a different school. I went from Carpenter Elementary in Deer Park to Deer Park Elementary. So I didn't know any of the kids there. Which, ironically, even with my shyness and anxiety, in that particular instance, it was a plus because I wasn't that intimidated. None of these kids knew me. Yeah. So it was the first day of choir practice. I mean, choir tryout. And my last name, beginning with B, I was the first one. And we had to sing a cappella of this song, Our Country Tis of Thee. I don't know what the title of that. Oh, yeah. I think that's it. That's Is that the title? Tears of the- <laughs> yeah. And so he, he, the guy says, okay, Charles, um, we want you to sing the song. And they may have played a clip of it or I don't know. But there's a lady on the piano. Actually, she came in late. But I start for this gentleman. And he's got this big grin on his face. And in my young mind, I'm just killing it because I'm thinking I want to be Glenn Campbell. You know, and I'm I'm this is my day to be Glenn Campbell. Going for it hard. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, so after I wrap up, the piano player comes in and she, he says, uh, well, Charles, will you play this again and singing this again? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I sang it again and he's looking over at her and they both smiling ear to ear at each other. And again, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, I killed it, you know. And uh, 
<laughs> I couldn't sleep that night. I was so excited about being in choir and getting to sing. I couldn't sleep. I went the next day. They had all the names posted. And uh, my name wasn't on the list. I mean, it's just a shit ton of names. Yeah. But I'm nowhere to be found. And I'm like, wait, I'm the only one they asked to sing twice. And they were smiling at each other, almost laughing, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and I, uh, even in my young mind, I thought they were making fun of me, you know. That, that they were mocking me. It broke my heart, man. And I never tried out for choir again the rest of my life. Yeah. Not in junior high school, not in high school. I kept thinking about that. But before that man had started, he was talking about this guy named Bob Dylan. He talked about him, it seemed like forever. And it imprinted that name in my brain, Bob Dylan, you know. So fast forward many years later, I'm, I'm meeting Craig Kinsey. And Craig's hearing some of my stuff. He's with a friend of his named Manuel, and they're, they're, uh, Kathy's going through nursing school. We're living at a place called London Bell Apartments while she's going to San Jacinto Nursing School. And I think I was working in chemical plant. And uh, so I'm, we're playing some music together. And Craig says, man, I really, I really dig your stuff. He goes, uh, he goes can I make a recommendation uh, to help you, you know, advance with your writing? I said, what? He goes, listen to Bob Dylan. And at this stage, I've heard Bob Dylan. I've heard, in my day, it was a song called "You Got to Serve Somebody." Yeah, and I, I thought, well, he sounds like shit. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he may be a great writer. You know, yeah, but, you know, but I, I'd read at this stage, you know, that he'd written all on the Watchtower and all these things. So I knew he was a prolific writer. But he goes, no, no, you need to listen to his old stuff. I said, his old stuff. He said, yeah, his his early stuff. I said, okay, I'll check it out. What this stage, Sam, I've been playing guitar for about 10 years, and I kind of run into a rut. I, I, Kathy showed me the cowboy chords, and I had devised every way imaginable in my mind with, with no teacher and with no YouTube or nobody to show me. I would just take a D chord. I'd strum it, strum it up, strum it down, find ways to pick it, any way I could devise to do something with that chord. But it's still, there was a song I was hearing in my head, I said, I'm not playing like that. I don't know where I'd heard this song, but I could hear it in my head. And it just played repeatedly in my head. So anyhow, I'm, I'm listening to Craig, and I said, okay, I'll check him out. So I go to Walmart. This is actually even, I think, I don't even think CDs. They may have been their emphasis. This is 1990. I was still listening to cassettes. And they had Bob Dylan, Volume 1, Greatest Hits, and vol Volume 2. Same money at Walmart, mm -hmm. but Volume 2. Two, you got a lot more songs. I thought, well, gosh, I'll get a better idea of what this guy does. So I'm listening to the album, and I, I'm okay, okay with it. I just nothing's some of them I like, some of them I'm not that crazy about. And all of a sudden, that song that I'd been hearing every day in my life—it seemed like every day. It's probably exaggeration, but it kept coming back in my mind. It's a song called "Don't Think Twice, It's All Right." And I said, and it's like, ah! you know, it's like <laughs> yeah, that song's been stuck in my head. Forever. The song, yeah. And I'm like, oh, this is so weird. I get, I hear Glenn Campbell. I want to play. I, I try to sing on Campbell. I get mocked. But this guy's talking about Bob Dylan. This song's playing in my head for all these years. And then Craig tells me to listen to Dylan. And I hear the song. And that's when I first learned how to Travis pick. I, I said, okay, I got to figure this out. Well, back in the day, you guys would be too young to remember this. But there's a place called Guitar Gallery in, in Houston. And they, they specialize mostly in nylon string guitars. And I didn't know where else to go. I said, hey, man, there's a song called Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. Could you teach me how to play, you know? He says, yeah, it costs you 50 bucks. I said, I don't care. Just please teach me how to play it. And uh, 
he he showed he was demonstrating because he used to play it in his repertoire and the guy that owned the place and i i was able to pick it up and he goes man you already got it he goes just give me 25 because you picked it up faster than i expect you to and uh that was the first step dude it, it's that was after 10 years just this being in this desert of not being able to advance you know once i learned how to travis pick and especially listen to dylan because dylan what i came to realize through listening to him sam is he he would take poetic license to play a role to put himself in somebody else's shoes i didn't know at that stage i was so naive about it i thought everything had to be biographical or autobiographical it had to be my own experience i couldn't you know like viscerally feel what you're feeling and try to imagine it yeah with dylan that changed all that so he was instrumental no pun intended but with the travis picking and that and that's when I, my writing really started to in, improve greatly but i just think that uh, sometimes i still think back is that some kind of divine thing uh, or was that just a weird coincidence you know that whole thing just it's amazing when those songs that get stuck in your head i mean i think a lot of people have that where it's like like there's some song i heard that when you finally hear it you're like oh that's that's it it's that's it. this thing that kind of got me you know got me going with music and just just was always in there and i just never remembered where it came from well i got a lick from you guys one night i i, I know it came from you, you guys and uh i didn't want to completely uh plagiarize y'all <laughs> but i almost certain it came from y'all but so I found a way to Travis pick it and, and, and hide it. But it came. It became, I think, one of the best songs I've ever written. It's called uh, Back to You. It's, it's based on the Coen I'd seen the Coen Brothers, Barton Fink. Yeah. yeah. And that's about a songwriter with writer's block. And he yeah. ho holds up in the Hollywood. Well, I, I love everything Coen Brothers that I've seen. Yeah. And uh, right. when I was researching, they, were, they had writer's block. And, and they said, well, hell, let's just do a movie about a guy with writer's block. And um, I had that lick. It's always fun. I tell my non-musician friends, like, if you have a favorite song, just imagine how it sounded in that artist's head. Like, yeah, exactly. They could not possibly get everything in their head out. Mm -mm. I mean, maybe Prince could, because he could play everything. Right. But <laughs> He's a genius. Yeah, so... Well, I think, interesting I think about thing. that when I listen to your songs. I'm like, I wonder how that sounds in <laughs> Charles's head. <laughs> well, what I tell my kids, uh, my younger kids are both writers. Mm -hmm. Audrey and uh, Dalton. I, I just tell them, look, write songs you'd want to hear if you didn't write songs. You know, you have if if someone's not scratching that itch for you, you scratch the itch. You know, and I, I I've been teasing myself about this. I was talking to Vern. You know who Vern is? Yeah. At, at the Burling Hall concert uh, last week, we were, I don't know what brought the subject up, but when I started writing, Reagan was president. And oh, you talking wow. about the turd in the punch bowl. I mean, singing sad songs in 1980, 81 right, yeah. was, you know, <laughs> the antithesis of what was happening. If you could fog a mirror in Houston, Texas, you could get a job, a well-paying job. You know, all you needed was a pulse. <laughs> and you, yeah. you know, it was the love you blue days. Money was plentiful, oil was plentiful. And I was writing these little sad songs because... The muse for me was my therapy. I didn't want to be on Xanax and, and what. Now, granted, those other songs were very maudlin, you know, unquestionably maudlin. I hadn't really learned how to craft a song, but that's what I would recommend any songwriter to edit, to listen to your stuff to the degree that you can. Try to listen to you as though that's not you. Yeah, you're listening to a stranger, and be very, very critical of it, and and, and then try to tweak it. You know, I was thinking about this on the way over. Since this is more of a songwriting thing about the journey and stuff, I, I, I learned a lesson just a couple years ago from Sarah Van Busker. Sam, it has helped me so substantially. 
uh, during the pandemic, I wrote like five songs because uh, everything paled in comparison to what was going on in the world. Yeah. It, my problems seemed petulant, you know. Yeah. So I, I did a lot of banjo work, you know, worked on Falling Mountain Breakdown. A lot of, I did Iron Man. I don't know if you heard my version of Iron yeah, Man. Yeah. I did these elaborate banjo things just to still do something musical. But I wasn't inspired to write because of that, because my muse is sadness. But when I would write, because of something Sarah Van Buskirk said. So we're at Anderson Fair one night watching Sarah. She's with Ken Gaines and, and uh, his guitar player and another person. So Sarah finishes the song, and Ken's, because it's a songwriter thing, he's asking her about the song. And he says, he's like, this is a really great song, Sarah. And he goes, thank you, thank you. He goes, she goes, yeah, that took me a year to write. And I'm like, whoa, a year, you know? Yeah. I, that's inconceivable with everything I'd ever thought. And she said, yeah, I, I had the first little bit of lyrics, and then I, finally a month or two or whatever it was, I wrote some more. And then a year later, the last verse came to me. And that was a paradigm shift for me because I was of the old school opinion, like uh, John Lennon supposedly said to George Harrison, when you, when you sit down to write a song, you don't stop until it's finished because you're in the muse and you don't want to lose the muse and that was always my thinking and i thought okay i'm, I'm gonna because there's a lot of times i've written finished songs i wasn't really completely satisfied with them yeah but i thought it's taboo to go back once you've sealed the deal yeah. to unseal it you know yeah. and i can honestly say the last five songs i've written from a craft point of view I'm 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 really proud of them. I listened to them as though I didn't write them. One in particular I wrote for my dad right before he died from COVID. Uh, he'd asked me to do a song for my mom, so it's my dad singing to my mom. I have yeah. never recorded it, but it's called uh, "But Then There's You." Yeah, you played that at the Big Top. Played it at the Big yeah. Top. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah, and and but that's just coming from me at 60 years old. I'm still learning how to craft. Now some of the old songs off "Kiss the Sun." Like some of them go five minutes, like kiss the sun itself, just kill them all. But what I'll do, one of the mechanisms I've used in my songwriting is I'll take that first verse after a big break and I'll repeat that first verse. I do. I notice that's a that's a little methodology that I use a lot of my writing. But I think I've read this and I think I've experienced it. There's a reason songs are generally about three to three and a half because of our t attention spans yeah. as humans, you know. So I'm learning, like, when I play <laughs> these songs, th don't repeat that first. You know what I mean? Just, yeah. Just, and when, when we played Big Top, I don't think I did Kiss the Sun the way I recorded it. So. I think a lot of it, too, in theater, you know, you have your three acts. Yes. And you kind of like your story you're telling comes in the three acts. Exactly. Where your choruses kind of act as your intermissions between the story to kind of, you know, give you your theme. Well, it's funny you say that because Zest Magazine, I used to always get Zest Magazine, Andrew Dansby had this article about the operas and, and things. They generally would last like 35 minutes. And that was the theory that it, the attention span for the audience, because they were almost all, or you know, uh, orchestras and, and yeah. choirs, uh, concertos, concertos, however you say that. They're all like 35 minutes, you know. So when I did Sandcastles, it's right there at 35 minutes, you know. So, but these are little things you learn the hard way. You know, you can't learn them in a book. You have to, you have to get on stage and just go through the hard knocks. You know, there's no easy way. You guys know this. If anybody knows it, you. <laughs> man, same thing you're talking about with like pitching and stuff, man. You know, you got to throw a million baseballs to get accuracy built up, arm speed. You know, it's not that first pitch. It's not gonna be there. You have to keep doing it until eventually it all just falls into place. It's it. And you got to find your tribe. If if you like it, there's a guy named Leo Kotke. Have you ever heard of Leo Kotke? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leo Kotke, yeah. A famous guitar player. Yeah. Well, this, in the, I was living at home at this time in the mid 80s, and 
I was reading it. I think it was a Chronicle or a Post. And Leo was coming to town, and he had just put out a new album. And I think it was like his seventh album. Everything up at that point had been instrumental. And on this one, it was singing. And the, the interviewer said, well, you're singing on this. Why did you decide to sing? He says, well, you know, I liked them. And he goes, I thought, it's a big world out there. If I like it, somebody else is bound to like it. And that little phrase hit home with me because I wasn't getting a lot of attention when I would play for Kathy and family and friends. They didn't seem to like my stuff, you know. And I thought, well, if, if I like it, there's bound to be somebody out there. And But that's another thing, like you're talking about the pitch of Sam, is building your tribe, finding those people that can relate. Oh, yeah. So they're out there. Oh, yeah. You just got to try to get through the mix. And that's that's not easy. It, it takes a lot of work. And that's where it's, you know, building your community in the music scene yes. is because if you got people and they like what you do, chances are the people that like their music are going to like what you do because, you know, that musician likes what you, you know. So it's like kind of like if you like this, like me, check out this buddy of mine that I really like. And exactly. you know, nine and a half times out of ten, those people are like, yeah, like that's great. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, it is a matter of perseverance, and it's and not it's not easy. It's rare we have, you know, of all the shows we play with you over the years, I've never had anyone be like, oh, that was terrible. And everyone was like, holy shit, who's that guy? Normally, it's like, we got to follow that dude? Like, what do we do to ourselves? <laughs> why do we put Charles first? Like, why did Charles play before us? My main criticism, I don't know if, if you guys ever watch your own performances. I can't watch mine. I will at some stage, typically. Uh, like I was on Sandy's show, I haven't watched it yet. I think they did a Facebook Live, and because why well, I, I generally have a letdown. I I, I get that adrenaline high, and, and now it's a weird thing, Sam, because I'm I'm my most comfortable on a stage. It's weird, even when I'm nervous, I'm just happy. I'm in my happy place doing what I enjoy to do. But when I get off, I have a terrible letdown. I have a the next day I have a crushing depression. I've yeah, got, I've gotten used to it, and then the next day it just starts to abate, and eventually I'll get around to listening to something. But one of my biggest criticisms of me and I can't seem to, to break it, is because of the adrenaline, I generally will rush. I'll, pl I'll play stuff faster than it should be played. And I hate that about my stuff, I'm, especially Kenny's. When I would yeah. play early Kenny stuff, you know, it's like... I think most people are that way, though. Nerves. When you get there in front yeah. of everybody, it's that... Again, go back to baseball. No matter how much you're doing in practice, no matter how much you're like, I'm going full speed. It's never full speed in front of everybody and everything happening. Exactly. So I think it's like that, you know, which I guess I have the opposite problem. Hunk him. <laughs> Kim's only like, you're too slow. <laughs> you I didn't want down. to say anything, but. <laughs> <laughs> Since you brought it up. <laughs> That's where I'm like, I don't have that problem. We always Kim's have a like, tempo argument here in wire. Speed it up. <laughs> I think it's because she's excited. I'm doing the same speed. Yeah. <laughs> she's all like, play it faster. <laughs> so I just really love that you found your happy place at how old are you now? I just turned 60 in May. 60. And you're happiest on stage when yes. 10, 12 years ago, you could never even have conceived of. Couldn't conceived of it. Being on a stage. Yeah, and my, you know, that's yeah, in your fantasies, like pitching for the Yankees, in your fantasies, yeah, but in terms of making it work. But it was a series of things. It was just getting older. And and I have to philosophize about things. Like, I have to, like, talk to myself, like, why are you getting worked up? And this sounds morbid, but it in a way it doesn't sound morbid, but everybody dies. And it's like, why not give a shit if this person hates me? Yeah. they're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's really And it. I don't mean that to be 
to, to make light of death or to make light of them. But it's like, why did I get myself so rankled over something that's temporary? Right. Yeah. This, you know, there's that freedom of knowing that, you know, the ride ends at some point. Yes. So just enjoy it because it's not, it doesn't go forever. It doesn't go forever. Like, just take the ride, enjoy as much as you can of it. And if someone, you know, it's again, this is same as you, like decades of yeah. experience of when it first came out, people were like, didn't like you it, cru- yeah. it was soul crushing to the point it was like i don't know if we'll ever play that show again yes but then when you get up and you're just like you reach that point where my brother used to tell me that it's like you've got to learn to fuck up yeah you got to realize that everyone does that's right and i spent years as a concert photographer you know i've seen the biggest bands in the world where you know you got that telltale someone looked over and it was like oh yeah that dude hit a wrong <laughs> right. note but then there's also that lesson that most people in the audience 99% of them had no idea there was a mistake. And there's times where it's like, oh, man, I really blew that. And even people who know our songs like, oh, it's cool the way this happened. And it was, oh, yeah, that wasn't that was good. Cool. You know what? You just hit on something that you're exactly right. And that at, that's weird because, like, I remember when I would hear pieces of music, right? And I would say, I'm going to learn that. For instance, when I uh, first song I learned was uh, a Bach piece called Jesus, Joy of Man's Desire. One of Kathy's friends could play it, right? I'm going to learn it. So I got a book of tab, you know, since I can't read music, and I just meticulously worked through it. But when I heard him play it, Sam, I'm like, I just, you know, I can't, I'm bliss. Everything's bliss. But when I play, after playing it a a billion times, you lose that dynamic. You know what I mean? Yeah. But they're, but like you said, you don't realize they're hearing it for the first time. It, yeah. It's novel, to, or even if it's the second time or third, it's still novel compared to how many times we play it. Yeah. You know? And it's just that, and there's that joy of even if you know the song well, it's like, I get to see it happen live in front of me. Exactly. And you're not getting that mundane, like, where it's like, okay, do we got to do it this way, this? We're looking at it more like a dance with various steps that have to take place. And yes. they're just like, they're moving and I'm seeing it and I'm here and it's happening, which is funny because we're the same way as the audience when we're the audience. Yes. Like, dude, I get to see this guy play and it was great, you know, and you don't go, well, the solo was a little different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or this part and he normally plucks this part here and he left that out, like, run the whole show. It was like, dude, no, I got <laughs> yeah. to see him. <laughs> yeah. And the version they played was great. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of it. You know? It is. It really is. And, you know, on that note, thanks for coming, Charles. Dude, thank y'all. Thank it's you. been an honor. This I've, I've looked for this. For and thanks this. for making it easy, man. We yeah. mostly just like, this is like you just kick cruise control. I, I, when, it when it comes to songwriting, I get so excited, dude. I could just talk for, <laughs> for hours and hours about it. You know, I just love the craft of it. Even though it's getting harder in this sense, I'm putting more pressure on myself now. I found this software uh, called Master Writer, and I've been trying it. And the last couple songs I've used it, I really love that. And it's like, if you're a kid with crayons, it's like you got five crayons, now you got 500 crayons. You nice. Know? It's a really great tool. So uh, I'll check that out. Then. Yeah, check it out. It's it's really nice, and uh, so I, I love the craft. It's it's a it's a beautiful thing, you know, and. Uh, so, but thank y'all for having me. I sure Man, appreciate thank it. Thank you for always awesome. be, you know, yeah. being a part of our lives for the last decade. Absolutely. Likewise. You don't have any shows coming up, do you? Uh, no. I, I, so what happened is I had hip replacement surgery and uh, I thought it would be healed by now. So I went ahead and 
uh, did this house concert and well you guys know we played the big top thing but I'm, just, I'm gonna try to let this thing heal maybe you should let yourself heal a little yeah bit. Be, they just idea. replaced a major joint in your body <laughs> i'm just gonna play scrabble and world <laughs> <laughs> maybe write some more songs right yeah no i need to i really do but i'm playing my banjo a lot and yeah i'm no charity and but you can write for me anytime oh i'd be honored to i would be honored to <laughs> we have to play it like no. Oh yeah, that's true. Right. <laughs> what are all these weird notes? Charles like dee 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 ours is chunk of chunk of chunk. Oh yeah, say minor C we got that. And Charles makes it all pretty and we're just jing jing jing. But yeah, oh, thanks man. for coming. We really enjoyed the talk. Thank you, Kim. I should And like you say, man, we ain't scratched surface. We'll have to come back to Charles again one day. So Right. Yeah, I, I went into all that minutiae about the health issues, but um But it was but, important to show, you know, the arc of you know, you went through all that. That's where you found the. Yeah, the and I like I like for people that you know uh, because I've studied that stuff or so. And you know, ironically, that's where I got my clots because I was sitting sequestered. I didn't know if you don't move for like eight to ten hours. I was I wanted to get back to my plant so bad that the irony was I wouldn't move. I would I would just be like going down the rabbit hole. Okay, you know, like what I learned about gamma mu. Yeah. Aminobutyric acid and all that stuff. But that sitting, because I have a couple of disorders with my blood, and so it was a perfect storm. I have something called uh, something f- protein 5 and protein S. So when you have that perfect storm and you're not moving, like people get on airplanes and, and get these clots. So it's, it's ironic. But I'm glad it worked out the way it worked out because if I hadn't have knocked on you know, death's door the way I did, I would have never gotten on stage, Sam. That's just the truth. You wouldn't have felt that urgency. It no urgency. Yeah, it it took everything happening. I think. Yeah, you know, because I don't think I'd ever been rich enough to be a Jan Dick. <laughs> I think that's a good you know deal of music and a lot of songwriters taking all these a lot of times it's taking yeah. these horrible things and turning them into something beautiful that connects with other people and makes people feel better knowing they're not alone in this journey. You know. I'm going to say a religious thing here. I'm, I'm reading this book by an Australian priest named Father Michael Casey, and he said basically what you exactly what you said. A lot of times we kick ourselves. He says, you know, you'll get off course. You think God has abandoned me or whatever. And he goes, but you can't. It's just like you can't fall off the end of the world, the edge of the world. He says you go all the way around the world, but guess where you do? You get back to where you began. Yeah. And I've kicked myself many times. It's like. Because I, did, I didn't have courage when I was young. I was like, you're 60 years old, and it's hard on you. Thank you if you'd have done this when you're 20s and all that stuff. But then I have to self-talk and say, dude, the fact you get to do it at all, the fact yeah. you didn't die like you should have died, probably, you dumbass. <laughs> so you gotta, you got to really realize it's never too late. Because even if you go off course, eventually you get back to where on course. And I just thought oh, yeah. that's a beautiful thing, you know. We can learn and grow and still be useful when we screw up. All right, man. Thank y'all for listening to this episode of Music in the Minor League. If you like what you heard, please share the podcast with a friend. It's the best way for us to reach new listeners. If you enjoy Charles, be sure to check him out on all your streaming networks and follow his website. Follow him on Facebook. That way you know when he's playing. He's still on the men from hip surgery, but when he hits the stage, you're going to want to be there. Now we'll leave you with a song from Charles from his middle album called Kiss the Sun. This is my favorite one of his. It just gets me going, man. This song's called It's About Love, and we'll see you next Next time.
was a good boy raised up in Tennessee Wanted to be like Jesus and to serve his country Shipped off to Afghanistan, one tour turned into five Came back home to Tennessee and that's where he took his life It's about love 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 